0: amazing to have an expert on hand. It doesn't matter the topic. Today on Looking at Lyme, we're going to meet such an expert, a man who dedicated his entire career to diagnosing and treating Lyme patients. And he did it all in the heart of Lyme country in Connecticut, where the disease was first discovered and then spread throughout the continent. Dr. Sam Danta is on this podcast of Looking at Lyme, and I cannot wait to introduce him to you. Lyme disease is still new to many physicians in North America, and there just aren't that many true experts, people who've studied the disease for years, even decades, with thousands of patients. For almost 40 years, Dr. Sam Danta was one of those doctors specializing in infectious disease. He's kind of an infectious disease superman. He has been treating Lyme disease almost since it was first discovered in his home state of Connecticut. We spoke to him from his home, where Dr. Donta is trying, somewhat unsuccessfully, to retire. Hello, Dr. Donta. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's such a pleasure to speak with you.
1: Right. Happy to uh, to join you as well.
0: How did you become interested in treating Lyme disease?
1: I was uh, at the University of Connecticut uh, at the time, in the early 80s and uh, I was head of the Infectious Disease uh, Division in the Department of Medicine, and uh, uh, I became aware of the disease, uh, Lyme disease. Um, it was uh, something that uh, I was aware that colleagues to the south at Yale uh, were studying it, and I became interested in it because it was found to be an infectious disease.
0: And so I know you've seen a lot of different patients over the years, and and I imagine you've seen some who have recovered quite quickly and then others who have developed longer-term illnesses.
1: That's correct. The uh, earlier you uh, uh, you identify and treat the uh, infection, uh, the more likely it is that uh, you'll be cured of the disease. But the longer you've had the symptoms... Um, it becomes more difficult uh, to uh, cure the illness.
0: When somebody first becomes infected, uh, when they're in the acute phase, what kind of symptoms would you typically see in a patient?
1: Uh, Early on, if you're fortunate, quote-unquote, to have the rash, a typical rash uh, that uh, expands, that you hardly feel, Um, that is kind of flat, sometimes bruised in the middle and then sometimes it it isn't a typical bullseye rash but uh, some unusual rash, uh, then that makes it easier to uh, think of the diagnosis, especially if you're in an endemic area Yes. uh, or you visited an endemic area. Other than that, uh, it uh, becomes a little more difficult because you might develop some tiredness, some low-grade fever, some achiness things that could be confused with uh, symptoms of daily living. But a lot of patients know that this is not normal. So when they go to their doctor and say these things, uh, it becomes a challenge for the doctor to uh, try and understand and take an appropriate history from the patient.
0: Yeah, so the longer that the illness goes untreated, the the more severe the symptoms and the harder it is to treat. Is that correct?
1: Yes, but uh, I think it's important to realize that just like any other illness, a patient who has Lyme disease might have a more mild disease or more moderate or more severe. And in my experience with it, uh, if it's moderate, it stays moderate. Uh, if it's more severe, it stays severe. It does not seem to progress. in other words, once the bacteria settle in i mean they 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 get in through the bite of the tick and then they go to both local uh, lymph gland areas and I think local nerve areas uh, and they generally uh, survive there they're not there like an aggressive multiplying disease, even slowly that progresses and gets worse and worse. So some people have a more mild disease and it becomes even more difficult to diagnose that because uh, there are ups and downs as with any long-term illness. Uh, And sometimes you think, oh, well, it's just me, I'm stressed. Uh, uh, So it it can be difficult, but uh, it can be very severe, yes.
0: I'm here on the west coast of Canada and British Columbia and you're on the east coast of the states. Um, it seems that in the states, the Center for Disease Control recognized that uh, the number of cases of Lyme disease were so much higher than their original estimates
1: uh I think that uh, all along uh, uh, there have been these cases, and it just took more time to uh, <clears throat> appreciate to recognize that there were more cases and at the testing. Uh, was not uh, completely accurate. Uh, It could miss a number of cases. Uh, And finally, I I, I don't think suddenly the number of cases uh, uh, became uh, uh, greater. It it probably did to some degree, but I think there were many cases all along from the 70s into the 80s and, uh, and into this century now, too.
0: So in Canada, we're seeing more cases of Lyme disease now, and I'm just wondering if you would have advice for doctors who are going through you know, training to learn more about uh, this disease and some of the co-infections.
1: Well, I think the, the first uh, uh, step is when you have a patient who has a number of symptoms, uh, uh, especially the combination of symptoms. It's not like you have an ache in one muscle. You might have diffuse aches or you have numbness and tingling in a couple places in your body. But it's the combination of symptoms that should, uh, in the absence of finding a localized infection uh, or another explanation, or even a person who uh, has what is called a chronic fatigue type of syndrome or even fibromyalgia, Uh, These are uh, terms to try and describe the major symptoms that a person has. This is not to say that uh, that many people, I don't know how many people with chronic fatigue or fibromyalgia, have uh, Lyme disease, but some of them do. Uh, And so uh, the history is very important. Uh, They may not know about a tick bite, but uh, that needs to uh, be looked at closely and the duration of the symptoms. And these patients undergo multiple evaluations, as they should, uh, and when you don't have an answer, then uh, you think about the disease, and then you do the testing, and you have to, the doctors need to recognize that the screening tests now, as they've been for a number of years, are not accurate. Uh, it's, when, when it does come up positive, that's helpful. Uh, for the diagnosis. So the testing is an issue. Um, The diagnosis clinical, uh, it's based on that. And in my experience, if you don't have any other reason, then the patient should be given a trial of certain antibiotics. And that's not an easy thing as well as the standard treatment, let's say, with one of the tetracycline antibiotics called doxycycline, which works early on in the disease, does not seem to work once the disease is established. And so some people give up and say that means you don't have Lyme disease. But if, like uh, my experience, uh, I found that tetracycline, um, uh, the early precursor of doxycycline, uh, which diffuses um, uh, uh, more in tissues, is successful. And then there are other regimens. Uh, I don't have a website, but I have published uh, uh, the rationale, the pharmacologic rationale. There are other regimens, but because there have been some treatment trials, uh, controlled treatment trials of one to three months duration that have not shown uh, any difference between those patients who received oxycycline or the IV medication, or even one of the medica- combination of medications that I've used um, that didn't show any difference up to three months um, should not be interpreted as meaning then that antibiotics are not effective. It's just that the duration of treatment might need to be altered and pay attention to some of the nuances. So this is still a difficult area, and I hope that uh, some of what I've learned and tried to pass on uh, can be used by uh, physicians to help their patients.
0: Absolutely, and you mentioned the duration of treatment and how that can really vary patient to patient. Um, yeah. My dad uh, is retired pediatrician, Dr. Ted Cormode, who was in touch with you, and he was telling me a quote from you about saying that you know you treat people until they're better, and there's really no set set duration for that treatment.
1: One of the one of the trials that I'd like to see done that is uh, a simpler trial, if you will, is uh, whether to uh, whether longer initial treatment. Uh, that is, uh, uh, in, in infectious diseases, I I think one of the uh, I, I think mistakes that has been made over the years, in the interest of limiting the amount of antibiotics a person has. Uh, is that the duration of treatment, even initially, uh, is, is, uh, may not be adequate. So I'd like to see a trial of patients who present with early symptoms, like the rash, uh, and the recommendation is two to three weeks. So say you have somebody who gets two weeks versus somebody that gets four weeks, uh, and, and then see how many of those people, in good follow-up, close follow-up, develop symptoms after, Um, the completion of treatment so uh, I think it's important and there are some guidelines some physicians out there already know that if you're sick early on and I think some of it is how sick are you um, uh, whether you should routinely extend the treatment and certainly as a clinician uh, I don't think it's a good idea to stop treatment when the patient is some better but not all better. I think one should treat them in this circumstance until they're all better. Otherwise, I think that they may harbor some residual organisms only to uh, become a problem um, uh, in the months or even year uh, after that.
0: Well, that kind of leads into my next question. I was going to ask you about if you are able to tell physicians and policymakers uh, one thing about the future of treatment—what what might that be?
1: <laughs> well, I I, I think uh, research is now showing that uh, out of Johns Hopkins and out of Northeastern University, at least in the U.S., that um, uh, it may be that a combination of treatment uh, of two different antibiotics might be more effective in those people who have. Uh, What has now been discovered is what are called persisters, persisting cells. And this is all test tube work and to some degree in the animal. Um, But more research needs to be done in that regard. But I think that kind of begins to validate what uh, I've done and what others have done in terms of a longer duration or maybe even stopping for a month after you've treated the patient for, let's say, four or six months, and there's some better, but they're at a plateau, uh, this, is, uh, this is what's called clinical experience and, to some degree, the art of medicine that I hope physicians are trained to some degree, but uh, the art requires experience uh, as well as knowledge. So recognizing what antibiotics are effective in the test tube against the bacteria, and uh, taking advantage of the experience of uh, some who have been doing this, like myself, perhaps others, uh, might be helpful uh, uh, to them. But having said that, uh, this field still is amok with uh, some well-intended physicians who throw the kitchen sink at the patient, uh, uh, multiple antibiotics and multiple supplements, and uh, I, I think it's an attempt to help the patient but some of that might backfire because in my opinion my experience um, that these bacteria are like parasites that depend on their nutrition from the body and if you keep giving the body more nutrients more vitamins because these bacteria don't make their own B vitamins for example and the body's trying to use uh, antioxidants to try and combat the bacteria taking a lot of these supplements might temporarily appease the bacteria, uh, but they, they will not be destroyed unless you use the appropriate antibiotic treatments. And the ones that I've found seem to be an answer, uh, but uh, maybe not surprisingly, some of uh, infectious disease or other colleagues uh, have other ideas or are not sure they want to use uh, treatments that uh, one physician recommends. So we need to do more clinical trials and I hope uh, the NIH uh, will be more uh, willing to uh, uh, welcome uh, some trials of longer duration. So in my waning years of experience, I hope that we can begin to set those trials up so that we can validate these observations. Because right now, observations are still being deemed anecdotal uh, as opposed to extensive observations that seem to have good rationale for it. Uh, So that's the state of affairs right now.
0: Well, and that ties back into your point about uh, having physicians trained in clinical diagnosis because we just don't have the adequate serological testing yet to uh, support the laboratory testing. But I'm hoping there'll be some breakthroughs in that in the near future.
1: Well, I hope so, but these bacteria are probably uh, not plentiful, but they're in probably uh, sanctuary sites, uh, perhaps in nerve roots, um, and uh, are not emitting any kind of uh, signals or uh, direct products to be measured. So we're still stuck with measuring the body's response to it, and that's not really good enough. It's not sensitive enough yet. There may be some better tests uh, coming along, and I'm hopeful that those will provide at least some indication that the person does have Lyme disease in the absence of, uh, I, I think this was more common in the past 20 years where patients were then said, oh, you're just stressed," or uh, even hysterical or uh, and, and I think that just demonstrates the failure of our uh, knowledge and the frustration of the physician, the health care worker, as well as the patient. Uh, so we need to get past that particular uh, hurdle as well.
0: If only we could see into the future. <laughs> Well, I just want to really thank you f- so much for your time and for joining us on the podcast, Doctor Danta. Oh, thank and
1: you for the p- opportunity to express my opinion.
0: Absolutely, and just personally, I know you were a big support to my father when I was really oh, sick, and I appreciate yeah. you going, you know, above and beyond and and supporting my family also. So thank yeah, you.
1: I, I continue to be available to those who uh, want to discuss their cases with me. I did enjoy. Uh, uh, the practice for 35 years, uh, almost 40 years, but I decided at some point that uh, I wanted to pay attention uh, uh, to more personal, uh, uh, that I had done what I could do. I, I was a little sad to stop the practice, but uh, I think a time comes when uh, you want to be involved more in policymaking, and I'm happy to be part of uh, the Human Health Services uh, Tick-Borne Disease Working Group to try and influence um, uh, the Human Health Services and Congress uh, to pay more attention and uh, to devote more resources to try and find a more direct test, to try and conduct more clinical trials to validate uh, the observations that appear to demonstrate that certain. Uh, approaches uh, seem to be uh, helpful.
0: Well, I'm so grateful for your time, and uh, I wish you a happy retirement and good luck with your ongoing research projects that you choose to be involved in.
1: Uh, thank you, uh, and uh, uh, thank you again for the opportunity.
0: That was really interesting. I'm inspired by Dr. Donta's passion and his ongoing commitment to research and policy development. Thank you for listening to Looking at Lyme, a podcast of the Canadian Lyme Disease Foundation. See you next time. And in the meantime, stay safe in the outdoors.